Welcome to day 108 of the story that changes everything. Our readings for today are 2 Kings chapters 3 through 5. Here's some thoughts to guide your reading for today. In chapter 3, the new king of Israel or Ephraim, Joram, is tested. It's not unusual, even in the modern era, for transitions in leadership to bring challenges from problem nations intended to test the will or strength of this new leader. It appears that Moab had been living under a kind of mob-like protection from King Ahab of Israel and required to give each year a large portion of the meat and wool it produced as a payment to this larger power. But with a new king in place, the king of Moab, Misha, decides that he'll test this and take the opportunity to stop paying. Perhaps in an act to demonstrate his strength, Joram goes to make an example of Misha and the Moabites. The strength of Ephraim is not to be trifled with. But interestingly, he's able to get both the Edomites and the Judeans and their king Jehoshaphat to join him in an alliance. The story is primarily used to introduce Elisha's prophetic authority. When these three united armies, Ephraim, Judah, and Edom, head out, they encounter a drought in the land. There's no water for their men or their animals. Is this a sign, they wonder, that Yahweh is fighting against them? They consult the prophet Elisha, who says, No, God's with them and will provide for them. And God not only provides, but pulls a trick on the Moabites, making them think that the three-nation alliance has fallen apart. They've turned on each other. And thus, they're drawn from behind the walls, and they go into battle. It doesn't go well, so Misha sacrificed his son on the wall, likely to the god Shemosh. Amazingly, there is an ancient artifact called the Moabite Stone that's kept in the Louvre Museum in France that contains Misha's description of this very battle. And on the stone, he gives credit to his god for turning Israel away. But the biblical version says that It's actually the revulsion at seeing the sacrifice of his son that turns this three-nation alliance away. Now, that may have been because child sacrifice is prohibited in the Torah, or it may have been that while they were trying to teach the Moabites a lesson by ruining some of their land, Misha's desperate and horrible act brought conviction on them and the crisis that they were creating for the Moabites, and so they ended their destruction and went home. They wanted the Moabites to learn a lesson about not paying their taxes, but they didn't want them to resort to killing their children. Chapter 4 is clearly meant to expand the reputation of Elisha as a prophet by putting several of his miraculous stories together in one place. Notice the way these stories have deep echoes to several stories that come before it, but also set the pattern for stories that will come after it. The story of the hospitality of the Shunammite woman to Elisha and her barrenness being overcome ought to remind readers of the story of Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis, when they were hospitable to the visitors from the Lord, new life was the result. And here too, the woman's act of kindness to a wandering prophet becomes the source of her future life and provision through a son. Of course, the previous stories of Elijah are the primary echoes that resound in this text. Just like Elijah, Elisha helps the oil of a widow not run out, and in almost the same way Elijah resuscitated the son of the widow from Sidon, Elisha brings the Shunammite woman's son back to life. The final connection in the chapter looks forward rather than back. Elisha's ability to put a few supplies together to make a stew that feeds the people during a famine and then ends up with leftovers to boot 
That's a story that will be relived through Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. Chapter 5 narrates the great story of the healing of Naaman the Aramean general. Although the skin disease he suffered from is sometimes translated as leprosy, it's not the same as Hansen's disease or what we refer to as the skin-eating disease called leprosy today. Notice the important role servants play in this story. While the various persons of power scheme and oftentimes have fear in the text, both the servant girl of Naaman's wife and the servants of Naaman himself have a faith and insight that's deeper and more understanding than the people with power in the story. Notice too that Naaman, who at first is offended by the waters of Israel, by the end of the story wants to take Israel's land or dirt with him. It would seem that the key point of the story is Yahweh's gracious transformation that exceeds the boundaries and ethnocentricity of Israel. Through Elijah and Elisha, God's power has brought life and transformation far outside the boundaries of the twelve tribes. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus will remind those gathered in the synagogue at Nazareth of God's grace that's extended through Elijah and Elisha to the widow from Sidon and Naaman the Syrian, and that will nearly get him thrown off a cliff. Too often we are hoarders and not extenders of God's grace. This chapter ends by reminding us through the tragic greed of Elisha's assistant Gehazi that the power given to Elisha is a gift of grace and not a self-oriented resource to be manipulated or used for profit. The texts for today are familiar because God is acting with his same steadfast love and mercy but they're also new because of the breadth and extension to which this transforming power reaches. So read these texts carefully, looking for insights and truths you've never seen before. Journal your thoughts, prayers, and questions. And look for opportunities to extend God's grace to unexpected places. Our readings for tomorrow are 2 Kings chapters 6-8, through 8, and we're adding Psalm 46. I'll talk to you tomorrow.